And welcome to the Plant a Trillion Tree podcast. I'm Eva Monheim. And I'm Hal Rosner. We're both certified arborists, credentialed by the International Society of Arboriculture. The purpose of our podcast is to encourage tree planting and proper tree care for our urban forest, which includes neighborhoods, parks, and other open space. We'll also cover the importance of the already existing tree cover and the benefits. So welcome, everybody. Thanks for joining us. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Monheim Microphones. We'll be receiving our new Monheim Microphones soon, and we're very excited. Monheim Microphones designs and handcrafts top-tier studio microphones and preamps right here in the United States in Hollywood, California. Their incredible line of innovative microphones and designs are used around the world by everyone from podcasters to top-charting record producers and singers. They recently released their new royalty microphone, Monheim Microphones Unparalleled Excellence, monheimmicrophones.com. We are proud to announce that the Planet Trillion Trees podcast has received a silver medal award for a podcast series through Garden Communicators International. We thank Garden Communicators for the recognition. This podcast is being recorded on December 9th, 2022. Sarah C. Lowe is a business management consultant, ecologist, and educator. Sarah has been a changemaker in municipal governments, federal agencies, and nonprofit organizations. She is the founder of Tacoma Tree Foundation, an organization formed to help grow a greener, healthier, and more connected Tacoma. Sarah is now the principal and owner of Strategic Nature, LLC which specializes in helping organizations and individuals make meaningful change. Welcome to the Planet Trillion Trees podcast, Sarah. We're delighted that you could be with us today. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. So Sarah, let's, let's jump right into it. Tell us about your career journey. Where were your formative years? You know, the whole background. Did you, as a younger person, have particular experiences that influenced, you know, where you are today and the path that you've been on. Yeah, absolutely. I grew up in the Washington, D.C. area and my birthday is the end of March. And I grew up seeing the cherry blossoms every year. And it it really felt like kind of a special thing for me, (laughs) kind of a gift. Seeing these beautiful cherry blossoms are kind of iconic in the Washington, D.C. area. So I think from a very early age, I felt a kind of special relationship with trees in particular. And there's a little patch of woods behind my house, uh, which is unusual um, living in the D.C. area. And I used to just wander around back there by myself, having sort of adventures, imagining myself in these great big spaces, discovering new things along this little stream behind my house. And I think it kind of gave me a sense of peace and comfort. I think, being outside. And it just became kind of part of my composition, I guess. If you think about it, my, my body's composition was made up of these trees and forests that I knew, just urban forests. And there's this little dogwood right next to my house. 
It's this old dogwood, Florida dogwood with a anthracnose, but it was a beautiful tree. And I remembered spending, I still, I can remember the physical sensation of touching the bark of watching the ants walk around the, you know, the little crevices between the, you know, throughout the bark, I guess you could say. And when I went, I went off to college to UMass Amherst, University of Massachusetts Amherst, and sort of happened upon a forest botany class. It just mm. ended up in it because it sounded interesting and it filled a requirement. Right. And then I just fell in love with the woods and the idea of being outside more professionally. And that sort of led me down a path, I guess, of pursuing that a little bit more. I, I did end up going to Philadelphia after graduate school and I lived there for a while and had the opportunity to work um, in a number of different environments. But I think one that just really deeply influenced me was my time with the Paramount Park Commission, uh, where I I spent time restoring woods and meadows all over the city. And I, I really got to know places that a lot of people don't even really know about necessarily. They're kind of tucked away in corners and and in some cases, they are big places that people love, you know, the, the Wissahickon and Cobbs Creek, um, places that uh, I learned also just from my experience there, how much people loved and cared about the park, how much they were concerned about what would happen there. And it really challenged me to think outside of my own perspective and to think about other people's perspectives. And, you know, also Philadelphia is a very diverse city. So I got to learn about some diverse perspectives about parks and what people's expectations were for it. Right. That really made me value. It helped me value and understand how important it is to Stuart land um, in relationship to the people who live and love those places. And yeah, and their expectations. You know, if, if Sarah Lowe was profiled as a tree, you know, we always talk about the bifurcation of branching structure, but you seems to you seem to clearly have a trifurcation. And I see that as I get to know your work is one uh, as an ecologist, as an educator, and as an environmental sustainability professional. And I'm wondering if you could talk about how these three branches constitute your work with your, your firm, Strategic Nature. Uh, yeah, I love that. Thank you. I love thinking about life and work as a tree or my life as a tree. <laughs> uh, and from the ecology perspective, I really do think of things as systems. And I think something that ecology offers us is a framework of understanding the complicated relationship of all the different parts and all these different parts making up a whole and the difficulty in really understanding how all these parts influence what we experience or what we see. And that has kind of become a framework for how I think about anything, whether it's natural resources or environmental problems. And education is something I've always just gravitated towards. When I was in Philadelphia, I taught adjunct at the Community College of Philadelphia and had an amazing experience working with students and uh, teaching environmental conservation. And it really got me hooked on this way that we can learn in community. And ever since then, I, I've sort of taken on education as part of what I enjoy doing. And, and so I do that now with Strategic Nature. I offer um, everything from like a tree stewards training that I do with Tacoma Tree Foundation. It's very similar to the tree tenders program that Mindy Maslin developed. And I also do like mindfulness programs, which kind of brings me into 
the sustainability piece is really, um, I have been an environmentalist since I was in like the sixth or seventh grade and the Exxon Valdez crashed and spilled all that oil. That was really um, a change moment for me as a young person. And ever since that's been a real big important part of, of why I do work in the environmental sector. It's to me, it's important what what comes of the things that we do, and I think we do have uh, kind of big problems in front of us, and and it isn't always about an exchange of information. I think it's also about learning how we can make change, not just what what change needs to happen. For instance, so um, all those things they kind of work together. You know, I sort of like to think of ecology as a framework of thinking about things education as a way of creating community, a learning community where we all can grow, and then environmental sustainability as kind of uh, the why, I guess, to some degree. It's like, I really do think that we have changes that need to be made, and and it starts with me. (laughs) It starts with all of us, you know, making individual choices. I know you from Philadelphia and working at Temple University, and your holistic approach, and I think that most people think very small. They don't think big. And when you think big, it's hard to go back to small. And a lot of people don't understand that. Can you can you explain why it's so important to understand big? Yeah, absolutely. I, and I love that. And that is exactly like the way I think about things is like as if you're hitting the zoom in, zoom out button <laughs> on a map that there are moments where we need to really zoom in and pay very close attention to the details because details do matter. And then also we need to understand the context of how those details make up a much bigger picture. Um, how does the one action that we make make a difference on this much bigger landscape or issue that we're faced with? And I, I think it's sort of like they're equally important to, to notice these details um, and also to understand how they fit into a bigger picture. Yeah, and I, I think it's so good because when you teach, you bring that into the context for people who are are listening to you and are students of yours, that, you know, you need to be able to slide in and out of things so that you can actually see the perspective and the the relationships that are happening, that sometimes if you don't do that sliding between the two, you miss a lot. and like you were talking about earlier that you had a dogwood on your property but you were able to see the ants climbing on the bark that's the big picture and the small picture together and how they work together as a system rather than as in solitary uh it doesn't work that way in nature everything is connected interconnected and i, I think that that's really critical for when you are trying to solve big problems I think that's absolutely true. And I think also it's just like people do think in kind of silos. And then we always talk about let's get out of silos, but really the context of the natural world, like you described, and also like the organizational worlds, they're really more fluid than that. There's more of a dynamic movement that's happening, sort of an exchange of information, whether it's a sort of a natural world or the context of an organization. Just to go with the ant analogy, it strikes me that ants are probably a little more cooperative with each other than humans. Yeah. Well, I'm sure E.O. Wilson would say that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I know. I always like to think that entomologists, they, they know some secrets about the universe. <laughs> 
Yeah. Yeah. That's very, very true. So are you going in then? Are you going in and essentially, we're using the word organizations, but are you working with company culture? Are you pursuing problem identification and problem solving? We're going to talk about mindfulness in a minute, but is is that kind of the direction you go with is having those hard conversations with people and saying, hey, how do we move forward? Because I'm thinking of a handful of organizations and they're not that hard to come up with that, you know, really struggle. Like most organizations have something that's not kind of clicking the way that they want it to. And I have a handful of clients, they all have sort of like different needs, different reasons why they work with me. Ideally, though, you know, working with a client who people don't always recognize that they have an issue or recognize what the issue is and being able to work with a client to figure out, you know, exactly uh, what they do see and kind of what I see and how it might come together in our understanding of that, I think helps because it's so hard when you're in an organization and you're just trying to kind of get through this project or trying to figure out this one problem, it's hard to actually see the bigger picture because stress really has a way of of narrowing our focus on problems. And in order to see solutions, we have to kind of manage and navigate that stress so that we can open our perspective wider and see what the opportunities are and also make choices between those opportunities. Because I think sometimes people widen their lens and then they think, oh, all the things, (laughs) I need to do all the things instead of saying, oh, I have all these options, these opportunities, these ways to move forward. Which one, what choice is going to help me or am I able to go forward on to get to where I want to get to? And maybe it's that this next choice is a small choice and there's some opportunity for monitoring the results of that one choice and then making a second choice rather than trying to get figure out all the pieces to get to this big place that we're going to be in the future, which I think is sometimes the way we orient. We'll figure out all the things and then we'll start moving forward on them when in fact we just don't always have the resources to do that. Sure. Before we started the podcast, you were talking about the location where you're at in Tacoma and what it looks like. Can you paint a picture for our listeners? Because I thought that that was really important because it's very different than what a lot of people would see in an environment. And I think that will kind of give you a big picture, but yet come down to individuals too. Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I live in a city, a a small city, and it is one of the most urbanized cities in the Pacific Northwest, actually. It's a very built-out city. We have a very low canopy relative to a lot of the cities in the Pacific Northwest. Yet, we are right on the Puget Sound or Salish Sea, and we are surrounded by water, and yet we can also see mountains on at least three sides on like a really clear day, the Olympics, the Cascades, and a Mount Rainier or, or Mount Tahoma. And so I can walk down my very urbanized street and get to a place at the end of that street where there are seals. And I can watch these seals hanging out during sort of mid-tide parts of the cycle. And it's incredible for me to be able to be in a place where I can pause and just observe these really cool beings just being. They'll hang out on these rocks and they'll lift their heads and their tails at the same time. And I always find it really interesting because it's not what I would call a relaxed position. (laughs) It doesn't look relaxed. Their whole body is engaged in this position, but they are 
just hanging out, just doing their thing. And so I guess it's relaxed for them, but <laughs> yoga. it looks like it's a lot yoga of effort. Seal yoga. Seal yoga. Yeah. And you said that the trees are very big. Yes, the trees are huge. I think, you know, the largest species and some of the largest species in the world come from the Pacific Northwest. And that's that's humbling. I think it's incredibly humbling. I feel like I should also say I live in a place, I live on the homeland of the ancestral homeland of the Puyallup tribe who are still here and still trying to steward the land. And That's wonderful. Yeah. That's a really great story. I'm sorry, say the name of the indigenous tribe again? Uh, here at the Puyallup. That is interesting. It almost like it's come full circle. We're back to talking about a group of people that stewarded that part of North America so well for so long. And now here you are with strategic nature, almost in a sense, trying to replicate the consciousness that first peoples had for that area. That tribe had it figured out. And now here we are a couple hundred years later, and you're bringing organizations in and saying, you know, let's talk about harmony. Uh, Let's talk about pulling on the same rope, to use that old analogy, uh, just for the sake of moving your organization forward and and being healthy. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, it's, I live in a place that, that was bountiful, you know, salmon, like crazy and um, just all sorts of life really thriving here and plenty for people to survive on. And it has been sorely used. Yeah. And so there's a there is a need and opportunity for restoration, and that restoration is is for the natural world and also for uh, relationships and community. I, I was just reading Braiding Sweetgrass, which I read kind of almost all the time. I just I'm always reading Braiding Sweetgrass because I, I find Robin Wall Kimmerer to be so inspiring. And I was just reading something yesterday about she says something like, uh, you know, we do live in this wounded world, but if we let that put us in a place of despair, then we won't be giving the gift back that the natural world is always a place for joy and that it's giving us joy and feeding us in so many ways. And that what we should be giving back to it is a joy and a love for that place. Basically, I'm I'm using my own words here, but I really think that's an important perspective because for me also, you know, I've been in this business long enough. And like I said, Exxon Valdez was a while ago. And <laughs> and so lots of scary things have happened to the environment since then. And, and we do have this choice of being sad and upset about all the things that are happening, have happened, or of looking and seeing the good and the beautiful that we have and moving towards that protecting that and then seeing how we as individuals can grow to become people who help helpers to be helpers kind of um, like Mr. Rogers says, look for the helpers. I always think of that too. (laughs) Well, you Mm -hmm. know, and that brings us to what Hal was so excited to talk to you about is the mindfulness piece, which is we're, we're coming back full circle to that mindful place that the native population was in and was disrupted. And now we're trying to bring it back and restore it or bring it to the next level, if you will. And I think that the intentions that we bring to a project or what your company brings to a project is always going to be through mindfulness, correct? Right. Absolutely. That 
that is definitely the toolbox we use, though mindfulness is more than than a tool. It's really a path. But there's a lot of opportunity, really. I mean, so so mindfulness does give us this opportunity to really pay attention. And, you know, so the definition of mindfulness, as John Kabat-Zinn talks about, is that we're paying attention on purpose without judgment. And um, it's, it's a very short statement, but there's so much challenge in that, really. You know, for many of us, we're actually sort of trained to be critical, trained to be, in a way, judgmental. Judgmental. Yeah. yeah. And um, to train our minds to let go of that judgment really opens up a lot of possibility to train our minds to pay attention to what's happening right now rather than getting in our heads about stories that we're inventing gives us a lot of opportunity. And in all that, you know, like um, some of this comes from this idea that we have a, a negativity bias and this negativity bias in our mind is always looking for threats. And there are threats out there, but if we're always looking at the threats, we don't have the chance to rest or get that mental restoration that we know from the Kaplan's we can get from nature. So I think when we're thinking about mindfulness, there's just this is almost an endless opportunity. There's an opportunity for the bounty that, you know, when we look around, we see environmental degradation, there's a sense of loss, of grief, of missing, of things that aren't here. But when we apply a mindfulness lens, there's an opportunity to start seeing the bounty of what we have. And I think about it even from things like washing the dishes. And we can wash our dishes mindfully, and therefore it might not be a grudging activity, and it might not be an activity that we're avoiding. And so that's great. That's one step forward. But if we wash our dishes and we actually notice that, wow, where I am, I'm using clean drinking water to wash my dishes. And wow, that's amazing. So many people on this planet do not have access to safe drinking water for drinking. And yet I'm using it to wash my dishes and to shower. And that's something that, you know, we can change. Maybe we can change that. We can help people get access to drinking water. But I can also, in my moment of washing the dishes, I can appreciate this resource. And in appreciating the gift that water is, while I'm using it, I might actually use it differently. Not just that time that I'm washing dishes, but every time I use it, I might notice that I'm I'm drinking water and appreciate that that water is nourishing me in some way. I can notice when I'm I'm watering plants that this is something special that I'm kind of giving to the plants that I just planted. I want to make sure that I plant things that maybe use less water. So if I see this as a sort of opening of doors and kind of a way of making spaciousness, which is such a contrary way of thinking to the way I used to work, the way I used to kind of be, which was that I needed to do more. I needed to do more, (laughs) work harder, do more, learn more, get more, you know, more, more, more so that I can make the world a better place or something. You know, that was sort of my, I think my train of thought. Whereas now I see that actually I can do less, appreciate more, and make very selective choices about what I am doing. And in those selective choices, I'm making a commitment. There's sort of a dedication to the activity or the action. And even in that commitment, there's a way of paying attention. So we get back to that mindfulness thing, paying attention to the action that's happening. Um, And in doing that, you know, maybe I know people don't always talk about love when they talk about work, but for me, 
work is an expression of love and of my way of contributing to the world. And I want the actions that I do to be an expression of who I am and of the love I have for the world. So that's kind of like getting back to that. When we pay attention to the details, when I pay attention to the details of a program, in some way, I think I want those details to really reflect care. It's, it's a loving attention. It's a kind attention. So even the way that we're paying attention to a program and the way a program is being implemented, that's just not, it's another opportunity. It's another opportunity to show that we care. Almost like a nurturing type action where we're nurturing ourselves while we're nurturing others and the environment around us. I would think that that would fit the bill for that too. I was thinking you were talking about abundance and I've read a lot of Deepak Chopra and one of the things that he talks about is that the earth and life always wants to bring abundance. It's us who bring the scarcity and it's because of our actions that bring scarcity. And I always think that that's really an important part of who we are and how we do things. Do we want it to always be abundant? Sure. Do we want it to be scarce and feel, you know, like there's nothing left? No, we don't want that to happen. So, you know, thinking in that realm really makes a huge difference in how you view things too. Don't take too much, just take what you need. You know, that kind of thought process too, because if it's really abundant, why do we have to keep taking more and more and more? Because it's always going to be there if we just take a small amount. And this has to do with trees. It brings us right back to the topic of trees and taking too much can eventually give us that scarcity. Yes. <laughs> yeah, just uh, getting back to organizations and mindfulness, a quick Kabat-Zinn story he told was that he had been to Austria for a seminar on mindfulness that he and his son ran. And it was uh, world leaders or at least European world leaders. And my understanding is that whoever was representing Finland went back and started a ministry of mindfulness. So it does take me now, of course, here sitting in Philadelphia, and we've had a rough year on a lot of different fronts, but just in terms of sheer bulk tree removals, it's been unsettling and quite honestly demoralizing that some projects were green-lighted that resulted in several hundred native trees being cut down, you know, on slopes, uh, heading along creek beds and stuff. So you talk about, you know, how do we get Sarah Lowe to come in and talk to, I'm not going to name the agency, but uh, how do we get Sarah Lowe and, and people like you to get that message to governments? Because, you know, for better or for worse, a lot of things begin and end with governments. Yeah, I, I wish I had an easy answer for that because I feel like so many people are experiencing that and it is demoralizing, especially when you know that, I mean, for tree folks, I'm guessing you have a lot of tree folks listening in to this too. And it's, we know how hard yeah. it is to grow trees from, you know, from seed to mature tree. They're a lot better at doing it on their own in a forest. They know what they're doing. And if the soil is taken care of, they can grow healthy trees and when, when we grow them and plant them, it takes a lot more effort and we, we lose a lot to drought. And so it's a big deal when we lose these big patches of trees or when we lose a lot of trees for, for any reason. It's not like we can just put them back. And the more that we put pressure on these smaller and smaller spaces, yeah, where do we go? Where do we go from there? We can't really turn the, the clock back 
So every time we lose a patch of forest, we're going to have to kind of restore and, and reclaim spaces and, and work towards a regenerative model. But there has to be a willingness to make change. There has to be a willingness to do things differently. And I think that's where we're at right now is that more and more people see that we have to do things differently, that we cannot continue to to go with the status quo. And yeah, we're, we're, we're kind of we're out, we're out of time here. And I would like to say that if people just knew more, they would do things differently. But I've really come to believe that it's not telling people all the benefits of trees. And there are lots of benefits. It's great to talk about that. But I think it's it's actually a matter of people making choices. The choices are, do we want to have thriving cities, thriving communities where people are able to be healthy in, in every respect of the word? Or do we want to continue to push these systems past the point of um, return? Um, and I, I heard yeah. something really great the other day and um, it was related to water also, but I feel like it's just a great way to think about things is we've been operating on an optimization kind of framework. Like we can just maximize the amount of materials we can get out of things, maximize the use of land. Um, and it's really very much like a how much can we consume? Let's let's consume as much as possible from whatever resource it is uh, to a resilient model where we are thinking, how can we be sort of in relationship to land? How can we be in relationship to our neighbors so that we can still be here years from now, so that we can still be healthy? So I, I, I don't really have the answer to that question of like how, but I think it's worth having these conversations. I know when I started doing this, there was, you know, we've known about climate change for a long time. This is not new information anymore. And I feel like there was really good research in the 70s showing <laughs> showing that yeah. there was significant change in our atmosphere. And so and now it's 20, 2022 and we're still talking about it. But I do know that there has been some change, whereas like 15 years ago, the general population was uncomfortable with the idea of climate change. It wasn't something we talked about at work. So I know that I always felt for a very long time like I had to talk about the issues that were right in front of us or the project that was right in front of us. And in the back of my mind, I would be thinking about all these long-term consequences <laughs> that were, you know, pressing from my perspective. But we're at a point where we need to bring that conversation so that we're talking about the long-term consequences. So we know we're making good informed decisions when we're making choices about anything. Every patch of woods, we're making a choice. Maybe the choice is to, to cut the trees down. But we should know upfront with full transparency that that's a choice. Right. That we're making that choice. Yeah. And I alluded to a couple of catastrophic episodes here with parcels of urban forest being cut down and due process perhaps not being fully executed. But the reality is, catastrophes are often the motivator. You know, the governor of Florida is a, obviously a controversial person, but he's pretty locked in on the climate catastrophe because he's watching his state take a pounding every time a system comes through. So catastrophes are part of the equation, for better or for worse. Exxon Valdez, we're, we get anything out of it? <laughs> yeah, it wasn't the first and it wasn't the last. Well, we, got, we certainly got a lot of uh, new techniques on cleaning animals and how to how to how yeah. to secure that oil in a place and keep it there until you, it can be siphoned off? I mean, we certainly learned a lot from that one catastrophic event. 
but it doesn't stop other ones from happening. And that's what we should be learning what not to do again to, to bring us to that same brink that we were at back in the 70s. And I think that the work that you're doing is so critical for urban forestry and the health of urban wood, but also our forests in general, not just necessarily in the urban areas. It's in the rural areas too, where we start to think about how we manage that land without destroying it to nothing or non-productivity because it's been totally devoid of that. And we do have cover crops now, which we didn't have. People weren't using cover crops before. But how many more cover crops could we use if you're going to be, you know, farming? How many other things can we be thinking about and maybe making our parcels smaller and not so vast that we disrupt such a large area? I mean, there's just so many things that we can think about and start to come up with a plan that can reinstitute our woodlands. I really appreciate that too. And I, I think it's also something you said that made me really feel like it is so important that we do recognize where we are making gains, where we are learning, so that we can apply that learning to other things and so that we can avoid getting because it's so it's so easy to get swept up in the the upsetting parts of things and and that's that's where this pausing can help to to notice as you said that well we did learn things from Exxon Valdez and we did learn we did gain some tools and we're doing that every day in every setting we're learning things that we can share with other people that we can improve on even more and i think that's that's really important and where urban forestry is concerned there's so much opportunity just in the small, those details, like in the details of the way we reach out to people, in the details about which plants we put where. Those choices matter. Those small, everyday choices make a difference in how projects turn out. And in the long term, how those small projects turn out, if that can be replicated, those small projects turn into a lot of change over time and space. Small, manageable projects certainly make things happen quicker when there's a lot more of those small projects. And I was thinking of catastrophes in coal mines when they invented the, what we use now in our profession, the air spade. That was originally developed to get men out of coal mines without hurting them by pushing the soil away from them with this high-powered air compressor and this force. And once we saw that from coal mines, we were able to implement that on com areas of compaction for trees so that they could actually have healthier root systems. So from something really negative, there's always something that comes out of it that's positive. And it's the same thing with trees. The death of a, a massive amount of trees, like in the Amazon, is making us really, really be conscious of what's happening globally. Well, catastrophe living. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We talked about mindfulness and you articulated the principles of it so well. And, it, and it's such a great notion to think about incorporating mindfulness into sustainable ecology. Can you talk a little bit also then about uh, your forest walks and forest Oh, painting? I'd love to. Yeah. Um, I have, um, is I guess actually kind of been a, a bit of a dream of mine for a long time to do walks with people outside 
using mindfulness. And when I became more of a trained mindfulness teacher through the mindfulness-based stress reduction program, I felt that, well, maybe I have some tools. I could just kind of try it out. So a few years back, I started doing these walks. I, I went to Yosemite with a group of people who were on a sabbatical of sorts and just led them through, you know, kind of five senses walks and things like that. And and now I do it on a more regular basis in urban parks. And it's always a little different. I mean, the thing about leading mindfulness is that you don't have control over everything. You know, you're really just trying to create a safe space, a safe container for other people to have their own experiences and to navigate their own moments in time. So when we go outside, we really, you know, we don't even know what we're going to encounter outside, really. Things are constantly changing, but that is the reality of life, that things are constantly changing. And so going outside is such a wonderful and it's a such a, a visceral experience to be outside. And I, I love the, the Kaplan and Kaplan idea of soft fascination in this way that we can be outside around plants and have this low effort way of paying attention to a, an actually relatively stimulating environment usually. Certainly in an urban environment, we're also working with sounds that maybe we associate with traffic. And so we have to allow those to be here. And that's how we, and we can practice that non-judgment. I noticed the sound, it's just a sound, a sound that's here and I can let it be here. What else is here? And we can kind of pay attention to the way that our feet are touching the ground and it's a reminder, like, actually, I am on the ground. <laughs> like, we forget sometimes. Our bodies are moving around in space all the time. And when we take these moments outside to be very intentional about our connection to the ground, and we can kind of feel the way that we are both supported by the ground and also pulled down by gravity. So there's this push and pull happening just with our own bodies making contact with the earth. And that, that alone is powerful. And there are just all these opportunities when we're outside particularly when, you know, one thing that I do is they're very quiet walks. I'm the only one who talks, generally speaking, and I don't talk to, I try not to talk too much. So there's an opportunity to be quiet. There's no cell phones. We're not using our devices and just doing those two things. I mean, if people go outside and they, they leave their device inside and they don't say anything to anybody for a little bit, it can be interesting to just see what happens and then to be able to come into what does it feel like to breathe when I'm outside without any distractions besides the natural environment. Yeah, what's here now? And to be able to notice that that is also changing. The breath is changing. And when we take even, you know, a little bit of time to do that, I've noticed with the people that I've I've walked with that people tend to be very surprised at how little time it takes with this kind of intention and um, opportunity for quiet to feel better. Like people feel feel better. They can feel calm in their body, feel sense of relaxation in their muscles, can, um, can notice what thoughts come up and sometimes even let those thoughts just be there and maybe pass. So it's just a really powerful practice and, and I, um, I love it and I encourage other people to do it too. I, I love leading it, and I think there's something to be said for sort of, uh, as my my mentor says, the teacher as the intervention it, it is helpful, but also just being outside, <laughs> I think, is also very helpful. And turning off those devices and having an opportunity for uh, mental restoration. First of all, thank you for that. I feel like you just led us <laughs> on a meditation. Uh, my blood pressure's dropped just in the time we've been on the air. 
I also had this crazy idea of wouldn't it be cool next year, Philly, Philadelphia will have a new mayor and a new city council. And how cool would it be to, on the first day of everyone taking office, to take them on a mindfulness walk? Oh, that would be amazing. Engage with Fairmont Park like they've never engaged with it before. Yeah. Can you imagine? Oh. Hey. Yeah. Wouldn't cost much. That would be incredible. Take take the bus, get the bus and drive them into the center part of Fairmount Park, drop them off and say, okay, we're going on a walk. And, you know, it's yes. the idea of being in nature. And maybe if you're in the city, there's not a lot of plants, but be mindful of the trees that are there the few trees that might be there and appreciate them for what they are and what they're giving us as human beings. The idea of walking yeah. through a park that is just to- you're in totally enclosed within the context of the forest is something that you cannot um, explain to somebody unless you've experienced it for yourself. It's something that you're so connected and you know, when you're talking about being on the ground and the tree roots kind of maybe going underneath your feet or, you know, that whole idea of connecting with the whole root system and the structure and the soil. And it's hard to explain that to somebody. It is. But again, referencing Kabat-Zinn, he actually led us on an amazing tree meditation, uh, which doesn't seem to be anything that's been uploaded. But he does a mountain meditation. Mm. Sarah might be familiar with that. And he just extended it to tree meditation. Of course, I resonated with it, but there was parts of the retreat that I was on where he would cut us loose and he, he said, go stand under a tree, you know, and engage with that. And Sarah, so much of this conversation takes me back to when you were a little girl in Washington. Uh, in the backyard with the dogwood and the ants. And I bet those ants had found a really cool little compartmentalized pocket of decay and they had their food source. And, you know, you were very lucky. So many of us are very lucky with those early experiences. And in your case, you've, you know, taken it into your life's work. Let me ask you this. What is your favorite spirit tree or favorite species after all these years? Oh, that's so hard. I feel like there are so many trees that are are special. I mean, trees are so weird and wonderful and you can find something interesting about any of them. Um, I think right now I am particularly moved by the Western red cedar that is Pacific Northwest native. It has a deep history, it's deep roots here and is also a huge tree if left to its own devices. And what is to me very moving about it is that when they're in forests together and they're the dominant species in the forest, they create a quiet. I notice there's a quietness to those forests that are is just different from others. And the humidity is different. Like they kind of create their own humidity uh, or not create their own humidity, but they, they do influence the water cycle. And so right. the whole system is impacted by the way that these these trees grow and 
And they also have these uh, needles that, you know, placata, it's like they're lacy almost, like they've been woven. And I always think of the way they droop down as uh, like a grandmother's shawl. And so they are kind of like these grandmother trees. And, and that's, I'm, I know I'm not the only person who feels this way, that these trees are, they're kind of like um, elders and grandparents. And, and that, that resonates with me. And I think that is also something that is part of other people's culture. Very cool. Very cool. Wow, it's been a delight to have you on our podcast, Sarah, and to talk with you and to hear how you're influencing the Pacific Northwest. You've certainly influenced Philadelphia in so many ways. And the students that you've had and will have and have, it's really important. Thank you for the work that you do. And Sarah, quickly, I meant to, you'd mentioned Kaplan and Kaplan. Yes. And I'm not familiar Steven with Stephen and Rachel Kaplan, if, I, if I'm not mistaken, oh. researchers. They were most, a lot of their work was in the 70s and 80s, but yet they are, they are referenced in research related to nature and well-being kind of still all the time. And okay. they had, I think, about four elements that were part of their sort of theory of, I don't know if it was actually called theory of mental restoration, but they had this sort of sense that from their work that mental restoration, soft fascination, I, I forgot the other two at the moment, but the way the benefit of being outside, what what it kind of a framework for thinking about how we benefit from being outside and being in nature. And it's it's based on, well, yeah, that's probably as far as I should take that at the moment. That's good. They were, yeah, they were uh, contemporaries of Ulrich, who, who was the one who did the first study on the tree outside the hospital window. Uh, and that whole oh, okay. health metaphor. So, yeah, there, gotcha. was a, there was a lot going on back then. And a lot more going on now. <laughs> well, thank you again so much for your time and your wisdom. We appreciate that. Yes, yeah, Sarah, thanks for your time. And uh, I hope to connect sometime sooner than later. We'll continue this mindfulness I would love that. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate yeah. talking to both of you. Take care. Bye. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye. The Planet Trillion Trees podcast is edited by Andromedan Recordings in Hollywood, California.